0: Welcome to Hope Beyond the Badge, a podcast that brings awareness, inspiration, and conversation together for first responders, families, and others interested in mental well being in first response. New episodes weekly with your hosts, Jay Bailey and Linda Kokoros. Jay is a father. A military veteran, worked in the fire service for 18 years, and carries a diagnosis of PTSD. Linda is a mom, a wife, a certified life coach for first responders, and a suicide loss survivor of a first responder. Let's talk about it. On today's episode we have Chris Fields with us. Chris retired from the Oklahoma City Fire Department after 31 years of service. Chris is here with us to talk about his career in the fire service, critical incidents that he was involved in, including the Oklahoma City bombing, and what he's doing now after retirement. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Linda and I are both very excited to have you here, looking forward to this conversation. Uh, first, would you mind just introducing yourself to our audience?
1: Oh, oh, definitely. And and like I say it's an honor and thank you for having me. And, you know, welcome to all your listeners or viewers or however they however they listen. But uh yeah, I'm a Chris Fields, a retired Oklahoma City firefighter. Um just like five months shy of thirty-two years with the Oklahoma City Fire Department. Um Born and raised right here in Oklahoma. Uh, still live here. Um, married. Me and my wife will celebrate. Better get this right. Um, <laughs> in June, it will be thirty-seven years Ooh. of uh, marriage. Uh, Congratulations. Two two sons. Uh, they're thirty and one. Just turned thirty-one today. Matter of fact, uh, thirty-one and twenty-four and. A daughter in law and a eighteen month old grandson that I can't get enough of. Mm. And so uh but again, man, I'm honored to uh to be on with y'all, uh, listen to some of y'all stuff and really appreciate what y'all do to keep getting the message out there.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank you for joining us tonight, Chris. Um we're very, very excited to to talk with you um about your journey um and your career as a firefighter. I know you're retired as as what they call a major, right, out in Oklahoma, but it's um yeah. it's captain, it's equivalent to captain, right? Here.
1: It is. It was a it was a uh a union thing to make get us a pay raise. <laughs> so they added added a step to captain that if you had so much college and went to this little two week academy deal, um, you got to wear little majors clusters and you got a pay raise. So everybody everybody that could did it, you know, that mm-hmm. was a captain. So
2: Excellent. Thank you for sharing that with us. Something we're learning new every day, right?
1: That's it. Yeah.
2: So um, I want to get back into you. Right. You've just shy of 32 years on 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 the, on the fire department. And um, was that something that you always wanted to do? As a young, like when uh, when did you become a firefighter?
1: I got hired two weeks before I turned 21 years old. So I was just a, I was still a baby. And I don't oh. know if it's a good age to hire a guy because man, you talk about cocky and arrogant and uh you know <laughs> you got the world by the cojones because you're a 20 year old you know yeah. firefighter and you but uh, i i grew up and i, and I usually tell as part of my story i i grew up the church i grew up going to here in oklahoma uh my best friend was the preacher's kid which they're trouble and uh <laughs> but our preacher there was also the chaplain of the oklahoma state fire department uh for years 20 25 years and so, growing up, hanging around Greg, his son, my best friend, we would, uh, you know, when we were too young to go out on our own and do things, we would go with him. He'd go visit the fire station. We'd go with him. Mm. And so, I kind of, and a lot of the, uh, I say men, because there was no women on the job then, a lot of the men from Oklahoma City Fire Department also attended the same church. So, I grew up being around them and knowing them. But then going to the fire station, it was just a, it was just a, Cool atmosphere. It was, uh, it was, it was like a, you know, another family, which Mm. was pretty cool, you know. Uh, And you see the, uh, of course, you know, firefighters pastime, they're out playing volleyball. So you got the team stuff, you know. And I grew up playing sports. So it was that team deal. And then we would make rides with them. They'd let us ride along, you know, and just, uh, man, the way they were revered by the, you know, by the community and by the citizens. And, uh, yeah, um, it was just, it was just something that just kind of, I think I said right then, this is what I'm going to do. But mm-hmm. I remember when I was going to college, you know, and then I was working for my uh, father in the oil field a little bit. And he had a feed store. I mean, just kind of doing stuff. And I thought, I got to get something going in a direction, you know. And I thought back about the fire service and thought, man, why am I not doing that? And went and filled out a application for a little small department on uh, a suburb of Oklahoma City. And I didn't get hired, man. My world was crushed Oh, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, they were, you know, it was like 20 applicants for like three positions. Um, I didn't get hired I thought oh crud, you know? So, but I had had an application in Oklahoma city where they were hiring 25 positions, but there was like 3,500 applicants
0: mm, wow.
1: and, uh, and I got the call and man, it just, uh, set my life in motion. And, uh, uh, I would do it all over again. I, I loved it from day one to you know thirty one years, seven months, and sixteen days. I love. Yeah, it sounds.
2: It sounds like that. I can hear it in your voice. Um, you know mm-hmm. when you when you said you know um right there and then I sort of decided that's what I'm going to do, and and what came into my head was, you know, I'm sure he had like a, a lot of admiration. For being around that, like seeing those men, right, working on their job and being inspired by them, you want you start to look up to them. That's what I felt. Right.
1: Yeah, and you know, and and, and you find out pretty quick once you're hired that uh, they're not all as cool and macho as they looked when you were younger. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah. And the job wasn't maybe as cool and macho as you thought it was when you were eight, nine, ten. You know. Yeah. Twelve years old. So, but yeah. uh, but I loved it.
2: Absolutely. And I I can hear it in you, you know, even just when you're saying that. So, you know, as a young firefighter, 21 years old, you got hired, right? What was that like um, for you, like, coming onto the fire department now? And, you know, we've interviewed a lot of firefighters and and different first responders and being new on the job, right? And a lot of them had said, oh, I was gung-ho, I was ready to take this on. What was that like for you getting on the department and um you know getting into that like first fire or or whatever it was that you were taking on yeah it was
1: a uh it was a total it was a uh, it was a culture shock at first because you know uh fire service considers himself paramilitary you know mm-hmm. so you have the rank structures and you have the and some guys like to take it a little far but uh you know, but when I was hired in 1985, it was still old, you know, gruff, you know, smoke-eating firefighters, you know, those were our drill instructors, and um, it was different. It was, uh, I mean, I had grown up playing sports, you know, and yeah. uh, had some pretty good success playing sports and always worked hard and turned hard, but I kind of did it at, you know, a basketball coach is a little different than a fire department <laughs> drill instructor. Yeah. So at first I kind of thought, what have I got myself into? Yeah. But, went along, you know, and, uh, yeah, it, the, you know, 20 years old, I turned 21 while I was in rookie school. So 21 years old, when we hit the streets, rookie school is only like eight or nine weeks long, which now they're like six months. And, uh, my first station, you know, our shift changes at seven. Um, they said, you know, as a new boy, you better be there at six. So I've always been an overachiever. So I got there like at five 15, you know, just to make <laughs> sure I'm not late. And uh, the captain from the other shift saw me just sitting out in the parking lot in my truck waiting because he was up drinking coffee at 530 because that's what firefighters do. Mm -hmm. And uh, he came out to the truck, told me, to come on in. He said, throw your stuff on the rig. And uh, so I was on a rescue squad, and I hadn't had my stuff on the rig 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. They get a ride, and three minutes later, I'm doing compressions, and cracking ribs and sternum, you know, that's something I had never, mm-hmm. you can practice on those little CPR mannequins all you all you want, but until you hear somebody's, you know, sternum and their ribs cracking, you know, you're doing it right. That's right. Wow. But, uh, so that was, uh, it's not, you know, it's not a super traumatic event, but when you're 21 and you've, you know, the worst thing you've probably seen is a dead cow or a dead horse, you know, yeah. maybe, and next thing you know, you're, you're actually working on a, a person that you don't bring back and you're, I don't know. It was just a weird feeling to mm. move them around and, you know, roll them over and do this, do that. And, and they're lifeless. So that was a, that was my first experience. And I wasn't even with my own crew on my own shift yet. Oh, so, wow. Uh, that yeah.
2: was your first so day.
1: Would, that was the, that was a first day and an hour before my shift even started.
2: Hmm.
1: And, wow. Uh, so um, thrown into the fire for lack of a better term, but uh, yeah. yeah. And then the, uh, the first fire alarm, uh, man, I was hooked. <laughs> I mean, it was like, uh, I don't do, uh, Oklahoma city's got, uh, we're 620 square miles. We have a lot of rule. I mean, it's, it's huge. Yeah. And wow. like, 30, 38 fire stations, 39 fire stations. And, uh, I don't do grass fires. That is, that is work. That is, we got a lot of wildland firefighting out here, but man, a structure fire, it was just, uh, I was hooked. And, um, I knew it was bad for somebody, but I couldn't wait for the next one. You know, (laughs) I I knew it was, I knew it was not good for somebody, but, uh, yeah. And I just, uh, from then on, and I just, uh, I did, I kind of got really gung ho and, um, kind of, you know, overachieved a little bit. I made it on my first, uh, promotion test to be a, a driver or Sergeant, whatever, you know, you want to call it. And then, um, the uh, first captain's test I was eligible for, I took it and I thought about not taking it. I thought, man, I've only got like, what will I have on? Seven, eight years, maybe not eight years. And I thought, but I had, I was just blessed. And I was so fortunate that in my first couple of years on the department, I was in some of the busiest areas, busiest stations. So I felt comfortable. Yeah. And so I took the test and, and made it. And by the time I got promoted, um, it was uh, probably close to ten years I had on the job. So at ten years, um, 1995, when the bombing happened, I was already I was already a captain. And, wow. uh, so and then and the funny thing about that is I like I said I considered not taking it, and a uh, an old friend of mine that was on the fire department, he lived right down the street. He doesn't anymore, but he called me. He goes, "Are you studying for captain?" And I said, "No." He goes come down here and help me study. And then, so, so I went and helped him study and I scored higher on the test.
2: <laughs> oh my was goodness. On the promotional
1: list than he was. So yeah, but uh, we still, we remain friends though. But, uh,
2: Oh, that's awesome, I and mean, you would have to like skip in like go- going over like ten years, like very quickly. And I'm gonna like I'm gonna take you back a little bit, but yeah, yeah, I there, didn't...
1: There, Yeah, there is some there's some significant stuff Absolutely.
2: That in there. Yeah, but what I noticed uh, also while you were talking, I could see Jay smiling, relating with you. Mm. Do you want to chime in there and, and hop in? So uh, I could
1: see you smiling.
0: Yeah, yes, ma'am. Yeah, when you talk about that first call or the first time uh, breaking ribs and sort of the significance of of those moments, I, I can certainly. I can certainly relate to that, right? And then trying to save somebody and I don't know um about about you in that moment, but uh, I had been prepped for the for the cracking ribs. I'd been told that that was going to happen and that it was a good sign that that you that that uh you know that you were right. that you were you were properly performing the the chest compressions still when it actually occurs. Uh there is a moment of significance and also what I don't recall hearing uh, was you know how difficult it is to actually bring somebody back, uh, how rare mm-hmm. it is to to save someone uh, when they're gone. You know when Very you rare. describe moving the body around, yeah, and what a moment when that happens. Um, but yeah, that that first that first introduction to to CPI to trying to uh, bring life back to the lifeless is, and you know hearing you say that that was your first call yeah i I can (laughs) only imagine uh how much more impactful that Mm. that, um that must have been and then i'll let linda take you back to the to the 10 years prior to to the bombing but i did have one question like yes sir did you have critical incidents prior to that i know you had events you had structure fires you you'd been promoted but had there been any significant critical incidents prior to that bombing was that your first major one
1: uh no we had had uh um you know some that uh affect us like you know in the fire service and and first responders what we want to do is get there and make a bad situation better yeah nobody calls 911 because they're having a good day yeah and you know even like now on that first cpr victim we couldn't bring back you know i was Twenty one. I, I was ready for the next one. I was, so I really didn't process everything, mm-hmm. but as you get older and settle in your career more, you think, you know, oh, man, I wish we could have brought that person back for those people. And then I don't know how y'all, you know, y'all do it, but um, we don't have our own transport. So, so we're on the scene quite a while, sometimes waiting for the ambulance. So you're standing there with those families after you just told out come out and told this spouse, you know, that there's nothing we can do. They're gone. So now you're standing with this family and they start, you know, either the, the spouse is crying on your shoulder or telling, you know, I've been married to this person for 50 years. What do mm. I, I don't know what to do. Or they start telling you stories. So it's just, you know, it's just, um, it's what we call a routine call in the fire service. Yep. Uh, not that it, it sounds like you discount it, but it, but it's not, but it's, uh, so even the small stuff uh, builds up on you, but talking about significant uh, incidents, um, had a few house fires where, you know, children died. Um, uh, probably the one that impacted me most was, um, 1989. We had a house fire that killed three of our brothers. And, um, um, one of the ones that was killed was captain Benny's Zellner. And Benny was my mentor. Benny was the reason other than I loved it. Benny was the reason I got on the fire department. I wanted, uh, to, everybody wanted to be Benny's owner. He was just that type, you know, come out yeah. of a nasty house fire and he'd take his helmet off and his hair was still perfect. And his shirt still looked starched. I mean, he was just, you know, he was just that yeah.
2: guy Yeah. and, um,
1: uh. you know, and, and that was in 1989. So, you know, PTSD, um, I think none of that stuff was talked about, you know, CISM or CISD, I can't remember what it was called then. It was very, very new. Um, not, not very well accepted <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and uh, so you know it was just one of those deals you um the old smoke eaters will tell you hey i know that sucks but i need you ready here they always make sure you're ready here but they want you ready here too mm-hmm. for that next call so we just gotta put it away push it down we'll deal with it later you know mm-hmm. well later is when you get off and you're not going to mess with it on your day off so so yeah, that was probably the most significant uh, thing that impacted me up until the the Oakland City bombing.
2: Wow, um, I want to I want to chime in on that. Like yeah. when you say like shove it down, like even from that first call, right? Um, I was thinking in my head, wow, how did he even process that? Like how did he even take that in? Um, you know, where you are you that young kid? Like I'm even, st- I'm going right there. Like this young kid, he's 21 years old, 22 years old, right? And he's his first day on the job, and he's he's you know trying to bring someone back to life, and um, and that was his first experience of it. How did you even be able to to get through that? Like, was did did anyone even there with you? Those senior guys say to you, "Are you okay?"
1: No, they, um, matter of fact, Jake probably, uh, relate to this. They, it was dark humor. It was, you know, um,
2: uh, they gallows humor that I disrespectful hear respectful
1: to that person, but you know, they had to come up with, you know, and that's their way of dealing with it. Cause that's the way mm-hmm. they were brought up in the fire service. So it was just kind of, that's, that's just the way it was. You, uh, couldn't dwell on it. Uh, you just had to, uh, you know, push it down, suck it up, whatever, whatever term, yeah. you want to use, you know, mm. these were guys that, you know, until maybe f- six years before that, before I got on were still, you know, not even using SCBAs on house fires. I mean, so they're like these, you know, rough and tough gruff. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, I, I, and as a new person, you darn sure don't want to show any weakness. You don't want them to feel like they got to come check on you. Yeah. So you just chime right in with that, uh, dark humor. And that's what, that's what works. And that's what, that's usually what we, it's usually what we get by on. Yeah. And, and, and I heard a guy say that, you know, we're, we're professional firefighters. So on the job to remain professional, we do, we have to push it down, suck it up what all those terms so we can be ready for the next call. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want Jay thinking about calling it, eating his lunch up. And then we're on a house fire and I'm counting on him and he has some kind of issue. You know, so you just gotta get ready. ready. You don't ask. You don't figure. If you ask, you bring it up, and that brings. So you just kind of just keep it quiet. Mm. But when we when we get on our day off, you know, we we still try to maintain that professional, and that's probably the time we should, you know, (laughs) deal with everything. Yeah, Yeah. uh, we don't want to bring it home to our families. So
2: so going into like um, as you said, you know, when when you got into that and you talked about like. Your, your three of your your peers right um you lost them in a in a house fire right and then um you know and then a couple of infants or babies right young children um passing i mean there are a lot of things to be adding up over those years right and still again you were going along with how you are brought up as this young firefighter in uh in this is what we do and Right. This is the way you're gonna do it too, because this is how we learned it um so you were learning from your you know your seniors in in your department, and that's shown weakness. I'm just to repeating this for our listeners um right. you know listening in this is this is how you were groomed you know in in the fire department. this is how you're gonna deal with it you're gonna shove it down, you're not gonna think about it because I need you ready um right. for that next call so um. I mean, leading into that, you took a lot of exams and, um, and I, I'm sure that's how you dealt with it over all those years. And then it came into 1995, the Oklahoma city bombing. Um, do you want to take us back to that day? Um, in the normal day routine and then, Oh yeah, it
1: was, um, it was, I always remember it was a Wednesday because at the fire station, um, all three shifts would get together certain days you had certain duties at the station uh whether it be you know waxing the floors or, or uh you know friday was big cleanup day we did the you know stripped everything off the rigs but wednesdays at the fire station i was at station five um that was a uh, yard day when we we mowed did all the weeding and all that and um mm. we had a big area it had to be uh mowed and eat and all that so I just always remember it was a Wednesday because that was going on. Um, it was, I think the Wednesday right after Easter and, uh, got to the station at my normal, you know, 32 years. I was now, if I wasn't there by six, I told him to call me. Cause something's up. I'm running late. You know, I always like to yeah. get there early and drink the coffee and shoot the crap with the fellas, And, and, um, yeah, we were standing there and we were, I, I could, I could tell everybody it was 9 o'clock. I didn't know it was 9.02. I would have said 9 if somebody would ask me the time because we were messing with the new guy um, because (laughs) he was going to cook that day. He actually volunteered to cook. And uh, so he said, you know, I think it was only like his third shift with us, maybe second. And we just told him, we said, hey, the station officer, I was one of the junior officers at that station, said station officer likes to eat by 9. And because we knew it was right at 9 o'clock. And, of course, he was freaking out a little bit. And, uh, that's when the, the uh, I mean, it was the whole station. It just felt like, it felt like something ran into the station and that's what we thought it was at first. The, uh, we had an ice cream plant, uh, right next to the fire station, which is a great location. And, uh, it was, uh, had railroad tracks where they come in and load their freon and stuff. And so we thought yeah. a train actually, we didn't hear a train, but our first thought was, mm-hmm. did a train derail and hit the station? We went out the, the east door of the station, nothing was there. We looked back to the south, which was downtown. My station, give you a little relevance. My station was the bombing was at Northwest fifth. My station was at Northwest 22nd. So we were 17 blocks north of the Murrow building. Okay. And we weren't even, we still weren't the closest fire station cooking downtown. They're kind of, so, uh, we looked downtown, saw the plume of smoke. Um, we self-dispatched ourselves, um, we knew we would be dispatched, especially because I, I was the officer that day on the hazardous materials unit. I was a hazmat, hazmat tech. And so uh, we just, all three rigs, we had an engine, a ladder, and a hazmat at that station. So we all three just jumped in the rig. Uh, to go south, you had to make a, uh, yeah, to go south, we had to make a hairpin turn out of the station. Yeah. As soon as we made that uh, hairpin turn, we could see the, the you know plume of smoke was bigger. Um, wow. we had to stop and pick up a firefighter because he, uh, he had, uh, uh, earphones on hearing protection while he was weed eating and he had his back towards downtown. He felt a rush of wind. He thought it was a, uh, we have an air force base just oh. east of here. Oh, wow. And he thought a jet had done the sound barrier thing, you know, the supersonic deal or whatever it is. Yeah. And th- he thought that's what the rush of wind was. He just kept on weeding never. So we had to stop and hit the air horn and get off and get him, get his attention and uh, made our way down to the um, bombing. And when um, we got to about, I remember giving a radio report, when we were like Northwest 12th, 13th, still eight or so blocks away that all these storefronts, windows were blown out. People were just coming out in a daze like, you know, what in the hell just happened? Wow. And uh, I think they end up saying there was, uh, I've got the stats somewhere, but there was, like, I don't know, 200 buildings damaged in a 16-square block area. And uh, so um, we kept going to the to the site, and the first thing we did was uh, we didn't see the actual building, per se, probably the first five or ten minutes we were on the scene. Um, before you got to the building, there was a, a YMCA building, Caddy Corner, from the Murrah. And there was a daycare in there also separate from the daycare that was in the Murrah building. Yeah. And uh all the children and the workers there had a lot of uh you know flying debris, injury, you know, cuts and lacerations. And yeah. So we we stopped there and helped up helped another engine company do some triage. And then uh the instant commander, well, we didn't have instant commands, it was crazy. The chief that was on the scene uh called us down to the scene to go help get a lady out of the basement of the Murrah building. And that's the first time that we, uh, the the crew, my crew that we were with was actually saw, you know, standing at the foot of the building and seeing that. And I tell people, one of the vivid memories is walking that block and a half that where we parked the rig, it was kind of on a hill. So we couldn't see the whole bottom of the building. And, uh, the whole time we were walking, we were just like walking on, you know, glass and rocks and like, you weren't even touching the pavement. Yeah. And, and I, I tell people now, if you would have – we were looking at that building. I know we didn't stand there and just stare at it, but it felt like we did because wow. there was this, you know, nine-story building, third of it gone, collapsed down on top of each other, you know, 30-foot crater out front where the truck was, which we didn't know. That's what it was at the time. And um, and um not to take away from any of the lives that were lost that day, but if you had told me right then, there's only – because you're 9 o'clock in the morning. If you had told me right then there's only going to be 168 fatalities, I would have said you are crazy. You know, yeah. So, so blessing or not or however you want to phrase it or look at it, to uh, 168 fatalities was extremely low for what for what we thought we were going to experience. Definitely
2: for uh, for the amount of people that were in the building.
1: Right. Yeah. And um, yeah. And plus and then all the people that are just in downtown Oklahoma City at nine o'clock in the morning, you know, mm-hmm. and yeah, the devastation little... that
0: you're seeing. Right. Like the devastation and the devastation that you're seeing in terms of, uh, you know, the, the results of, of the explosion, um, which I imagine you didn't know yet. Right. Like, you, were you trying to figure out what happened or in that <laughs> yeah. mode with that amount of chaos where you just triage on to the next? We'll figure it out later.
1: We, on the way there, we were just kind of going over in our head, you know, we were like, uh, the, uh, what they call the water resources board, uh, building. Mm-hmm. That's the one where the actual museum is now, the water resources board building. Okay. They were doing like adding on a roof or doing something. Cause one of the guy, the guy that was driving me said, you know, they were welding some beam. he thought we thought maybe a welder's torch, you know, had mm-hmm. gone off or we thought maybe a, um, underground natural gas line we get those a bunch usually just rupture and spew you know not right. you know yeah but we thought well maybe one found an ignition source and that's what it was we had no idea that um there was a uh, a bomb you know that was purposely you know detonated yeah mm. until i think you know there was rumors going around while we were digging and working and but it wasn't until and i know we'll go back but uh, probably about an hour or so into the incident, I think maybe they made us all evacuate because they uh, they came on the radio and said they had located another explosive device. Mm-hmm. We were like, "We mean another explosive? <laughs> we didn't yeah. know there was one, you yeah. know." And it yeah. ended up being the the ATF was up on the ninth floor and they had some dummy devices uh, setting up there. Yeah, And a good old freelancing firefighter had gone up there and found it. And so it ended up being nothing, but, uh, and that's significant. And I don't know what the age of, I find the more people I speak in front of are younger and younger, and they didn't even know there was a bombing in Oklahoma city or they, so just to refresh your listeners, if they don't know real quick, it was April 19th, 1995 was the two year anniversary of the Waco siege down in, uh, Waco, Texas. Yeah. with the Branch Davidians. And April nineteenth, 1993, the one of the gentlemen that was running in charge down there was now here with the ATF, which was on the ninth floor of that building. That's why Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols targeted that building on that day. That was their... They were paying back the government for what happened uh, because they were anti-government now, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... That, that is the reason that the Murrah building was – because a lot of people were like, why Oklahoma City? Why, you know, the that's, middle yeah. of nowhere, <laughs> the middle of the country? You know yeah. why, you know. Uh, that's the reason why that so was that's, targeted. That's the reasoning. That, that was where they thought they'd get their payback. And yeah, uh, they knew there was a daycare in there because they have video of Timothy McVeigh walking through the building the day before casing the place, you know, to see. So he knew there was a daycare in there. And I think he even said on a later interview that, you know, yeah, he knew there was, and that's, that's collateral damage. It's part of war, you know, so wow. the kids. So, yeah.
2: So during this time, right. It's so hard to, to get into the whole picture of that scene, right. Unless you were there, right. For you. Um, so I'm trying to sort of, you know, ask an appropriate question that, That our Mm -hmm. listeners will be able to engage with, right, by listening. Um, Mm -hmm. Like during that whole time frame, from the time that you got on the scene, like how long were you guys there for?
1: Uh, How long were you guys there, like to paint a picture? Do what now? How
2: long, like to paint that picture for our listeners? How long were you guys all there for?
1: Uh, Well, the the total instantly incident lasts almost a month before they imploded the building but the uh, when we first got there at 9 10 9 whatever a little bit after 902 um we got released to go back to the station at 11 15 that night so and uh, we went back and they brought some other crews down and then they did the same thing the next day and then they just came up with a system that you would go down there when you was on your 24-hour shift you'd work 12 hours at the building and then go back to the station. Yeah. Cause I, you know, like even when we got back to the station at 1115 that night, we'd no more crawled in bed, you know, and had a, we get a house fire, you know, so oh, the wow. city was still, you know, house fires and there were still people having heart attacks and there were still, wow. you know, people getting wow. mugged. And so it was a, uh, but the, the unique thing about that though, is there were two, there was a bank, I think the two banks and a credit or a bank and a credit union anyway had all their windows blown out and cash drawers left open. But what was amazing, and they talked about in that first two or three, four hours, no 911 calls of any other type. Those banks accounted for every penny. Uh, you know, wow. so nobody, there wasn't any people, you know,
2: loitering. Nope. Yeah.
1: And it, it was, it was everybody was focused on because I talked about when they had made us evacuate that was the time we actually got kind of, I would say we got control of the incident. We were able to get civilians out of the way that were helping. Yeah. I don't mean out of the way in a bad way. Um,
2: Yeah.
1: Everybody did what they could, but we didn't want to have another, you know, matter of fact, one of the fatalities was a nurse, Rebecca Anderson. She came down there on her day off just to help got down there. Right. It happened. And a piece of falling debris hit her and killed her. And, you know, so that was, um, that's when it gave us a chance though, to kind of reset set up incident command and, and kind of decided, but we were, we ended up being there, um, off and on for, uh, you know, I think almost a month before they finally, um, there was three people they said that we just can't get them out until we implode the building. And those amazing experts, on how they do it, make it fall a certain way. But, uh, after they imploded it went in and got the three final people. And so out, wow. but it was a, a month total.
2: That's what, that's what I was going to ask you, like, you know, during that month, like, obviously sec- securing the whole place because the building could fall different ways, right, and, and different floors could still collapse, right? right, and different parts of it, but there was still, you know, people still in there. So the whole recovery, I am sh- want to say that word, recovery,
1: yeah.
2: of yeah. getting people out of the building took a whole month to get people out to find people. the,
1: uh, yeah, the recovery it did. And, and what was really cool and new to me to see back then even, um, was they had, um, all we had, once we got all these USAR urban search and rescue teams in that were familiar with that kind of stuff, we were training to become one at that time. So we had a little bit of knowledge of moving large debris and that kind of stuff, but they, and some of these local wrecking companies, like a company called Midwest wrecking, um, awesome people. They come in and they had these structural engineers from all over the country. They had these laser beams on the building. And if they moved, I don't know what the smallest fraction of measurement is, but if it moved that much, they would stop all operations and uh, evacuate, go in there and do whatever shoring and cribbing they need to do. Yeah, And said, okay, you can go back in. So that was the process. Um, wow Gina Bradley was the last live person taken out that night, the, fir- the April 19th, the rest of the time was all from the, from then on was all, uh, recovery. Wow. There was no, uh, yeah, we, we saw our, uh, and we'll go back and recap my my steps through the, through that day. But, uh, I think about probably about 11, 10, 30, 11 is when we, uh, extricated lady that was still alive. And that was our last, uh, contact with uh, anybody that was alive.
2: Oh, wow. wow. I can't imagine what that was like for all of you guys, um, you know, on the scene and then having to go back like to the station, get some sleep. And, and, and as I said, you were just about to get to sleep, even if you were able to sleep after that, like trying to process, right. you know, your day of what you went through. And was this was this just a nightmare or was it real? And then having to go out to a, a fire. Um, a fire alarm um, right, yeah. to get out there like there's just talk about like what you said earlier on you know you needed to be ready for the next call
1: yeah and you know and we got back station. we talked about it. we talked about some of the things we 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 saw and the thing some of the things we had to do which uh you know are not not things you think you would even do even in the fire service
2: yeah
1: um you know there were of course you know we had to do a lot of stuff with some doctors that had to a tunnel in there with us and um two guys in my crew had to you know and you got it once you locate you know who it is you talk to the family well this one lady she was deceased she wasn't coming out until her leg was extra there was no way to get her out without cutting off her left leg from like the middle of the thigh down it was just there was no way and uh so um, you know things like that that we're sitting there watch happening you know it's just things you don't you know as as the weeks went on you know now we're walking around with the uh, Uh, air mask, you know, little breathers on with uh, putting peppermint in them and stuff, you know, because of the, you know, your two and three weeks of uh, of bodies. And uh, spending time with search dogs that are both live scent and cadaver dogs, cadaver scent dogs. And um, I think some of the things that stand out to me, I tell people, you know, of course, i would never done it before and not anything like it since for me, but to have, uh, you know, over the radio talking about setting up a temporary morgue so we used the wow. playground for the the nursery. That was the temporary morgue. We were, you know, putting bodies and having to, you know, spray paint the numbers of what body number that uh, they were on the bag and um, and then they got right, the, You know, never been on scene where you have refrigeration trucks, you know, yeah. for bodies. Yeah. So all that kind of little stuff. Uh, yeah, it's some of the stuff that you know stands out to me because it was so. Uh, you know, I said I had never done or seen anything like it before and. And
2: since, so. yeah, well, thank thank goodness you haven't seen it since. Yes, thank goodness. Um, there was one there was one picture, that was all over media. Um, is it okay to bring that up with you? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. there was one there was one picture that was all over media with you holding a baby, a child. Mm-hmm. Can you take Bailey. us, in, Bailey? Bailey, yeah. um, do you wanna mm-hmm. do you wanna talk about that a little bit with us? Um, yeah. Like, what was that like? Yeah. Um. I wouldn't say what was that like for you, but um, share with us a little bit how that picture was the one picture that was all over media and magazines yeah, and everywhere. At,
1: yeah. And I don't mind talking about it because as I get to travel and speak, that's where I get my platform from that day and, and that photo. And so when, when I speak before I do any of my presentations or speak, I always, you know, talk about the 168 victims and honor them and, yeah. and Bailey herself Um jumping ahead with me and ba- Bailey and her mom is the name of Aaron and we're still good friends today. We still, our family still talk and she's had two more children since then. Yeah. And, uh, so we're all, we're still in touch, Christmas cards, graduations, all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, we, we got down to the building. I told you we went from that triage to go help them get a lady out of the basement. Yeah. And as soon as we came up out of the basement, they told, uh, they signed my crew and another crew to go to the south side of the building and go down in this area. What we, we gave instead of, uh, so we know where they were talking about. We gave her everything like geographical names, like the pit, yeah. you know, or the, uh, I can't remember the pile, you know, so you'd know where you were at geographically. yeah. And, uh, we started to walk to the south side of the building and a gentleman, a police officer off duty, um, I mean, he, I don't know where he came from. He, I don't know if he came out of a door or he came around the building, but he was just hollering. I've got a critical infant. And, uh, I said, here, I'll, you know, give her to me or give it to me. Is probably what I said, not knowing if the a boy or a girl, but, uh, and so he handed me Bailey and there's actually a photo of, uh, I don't have it around here, actually a photo of Sergeant Avery handing Bailey to me and, uh, And so I, you know, first thing I did was check her for any, you know, signs of life. Uh, Had to clear some concrete dust out of her throat and uh, she had an open skull fracture. I think her little, I think her little leg was broke. And, uh, but uh, like I said, I didn't find any signs of life. Saw across the street in a parking lot, there was an ambulance. I went over there, told the paramedic, said, hey, I've got a critical infant. And he said, let me get a blanket because the, the ambulance was full. There was somebody on the cot up on the bench and in the floor, several people laying around on backboards being treated. And he said, let me get a blanket. We're not going to put that baby on the ground. And uh, so he got up in the ambulance to get a uh, blanket. So we put it on the ground. Um, It, it kind of jumps around because I didn't know about the photo until I didn't know the photo taken until 11, until we got back to the station that night. Yeah. And I didn't see it for the first time until the next day.
2: Mm.
1: So um, I'll say this. I got back to the station. We worked the rest of that day. Um, let me back up. I'll tell you the whole day real quick. Uh, <laughs> um, a- after the photo, uh, I mean, after the after I gave baby to the paramedic, um, I just went back and caught up with my crew. And uh, they were already down in the pit area. And that's where we encountered, I told you, that our last person that we were able to talk to yes and uh they were actually walking around top of her they could hear her screaming and hollering and so everybody just kind of got quiet and so she was letting us know where she felt our pressure so we'd know how she was laying you know where her head was so we got her out uh sheila driver 28 years old never forget her uh eight seven eight months pregnant talking about her other kids she had at home whoa and uh um the reason she was so significant to us that was our that was our feel good moment for the day you know uh for the next 11 hours that were 12 hours that was our feel good moment moment yeah. uh actually and then the next morning at the station uh they started running the list of fatalities and she had passed away on the way to the fire uh to the hospital oh. so that you know like i said that that was a significant deal for us because that was our little bit of We actually got there and made a bad situation better, you know, and uh, that was kind of a weird side note to that real quick. She was talking about these other kids she had uh, about three years ago. I'm at a function and this lady comes up to me and we're talking and she knows who I am. I have no clue who she is. She was one of Sheila driver's daughters. And so she came up and introduced herself to me. It was a pretty cool moment because she said, you're the last person that I know that talked to my mother.
2: Wow! I, I,
1: I haven't met the ambulance people. I haven't met the whatever she said, but I know you talked to my mother, and I said I did. So I get emotional talking about it. But uh, oh, it was it was kind of a uh, full circle moment. Pretty cool. Wow. Um. Wow. So back to the photo. As I say, when I do this, and I talk, it's so because there was things that happened after the Yeah. I mean, after the uh, after Bailey, and then
2: yeah.
1: So we worked the rest of that shift, go back to the station when we walk in the uh, circuit line, the one that connects all the fire station was ringing and it was the dispatch office. And as a friend of mine, the dispatch, and, uh, he said, hey, Chris, did you carry a baby out of the building? And I said, no. I said, a gentleman uh, handed me a baby mm. and he said, well, I just got a photo faxed to us <laughs> from the Associated Press and they want to identify the firefighter in this photo. <clears throat> yeah. And he goes, and it looks like you. Uh, cause it was on a, it was fact. So it was kind of grainy, you know, it wasn't real clear. Yeah. And I remember him saying, yeah, I think I see your little cheesy porn stash is what he said. He <laughs> said, so I'm, I'm pretty sure it's you, you know? And so I asked the other two guys there at the station, major Cruz and major Mayfield if uh, cause they had red helmets too. If they carried a baby out or anything, they said, no. So I told Harvey, I said, Harvey, I guess it's me. What's what's going on? He said, well, the, AP says this, uh, once they identify where well, they have, there's trying to identify the firefighter. If not, it doesn't matter. It's going worldwide tomorrow. Wow. And I was like, okay, like whatever. Didn't, you know, really yeah. not registering what worldwide men at the time. Yeah. And, uh, everybody was like, what was that about? And I said, I don't know. I said, evidently I'm going worldwide tomorrow. And sure enough, man, the next morning, uh, the other shift, came in and one guy had in the daily Oklahoma in our paper, it was a uh, inset picture on the front page and the yeah. Dallas morning news USA today. So we yeah. had the TV on to watch all the morning news shows and it was showing all the, around the world. And it was like on, I don't know how many different languages of their newspapers or their magazines, whatever, Every people got their news. And my first thought then was, I wonder if the parents even know, you know, I, I'm not a mother, so I don't know, but I would think a mother would say, that's my baby, you know, cause she yeah. had on little yellow socks, you know? So, and, and, um, so that was my first thought. I thought, Hey, haven't identified that baby, how, you know, does the family, even though that's how they're going to find out, you know, cause not everybody was accounted for. Right. There was people waiting for weeks to find out about their loved ones. Wow. And so that was my first kind of concern was about, um, uh, was whether the parents knew um and of course she didn't uh oh well she identified bailey the day before so she knew bailey was deceased but she didn't know about the the photo
2: Go now. Um, yeah
1: yeah so she um i guess she lived in an apartment building a catty corner from the murrah building so her apartment was damaged so she was staying with her grandparents and she said, I knew something was up when I got up in the morning and went in the kitchen. They were drinking their coffee and they weren't reading the newspaper. She said, they always read the newspaper and they were trying to hide it from her. And so that's how she found out. And then we met like the next day. We met that day, that Thursday after the bombing. Wow. Uh, it was a weird deal. A, a reporter called and said, Hey, Chris, this is Cynthia Gunn, I think from Channel Nine, our CBS deal. And she said, um, we've been talking to Aaron Allman and of course I didn't know who Aaron Allman was at the time. Yeah. And I said, who? And she said, uh, Bailey Allman's mother. And I was like, again, who? Cause I had, there was no names yet. Yeah. And so she said, you know, in the photo you're carrying Bailey Almond," and she goes, her mother wants to meet you. Or no, she said, would you want to meet the mother? And I said, no, I said, I don't know what she's going to say, how, what she's going to react with. And she said, she goes, okay. She goes, I was just checking because she had called us, said she wanted to meet you. I said, whoa, what? That changes everything then, you know? Yeah. And I said, it's her call, then, yeah, let's, you know, whatever she needs.
2: Yeah.
1: So, uh, met, went and met her, and um, we kind of just bonded. It was kind of a big brother, little sister. I'm um, like 10 years older than her, 11 years older than her. Yeah. She was a 20-year-old, 20-year-old single mom. Yeah. Had just, had just lost her. Baby, you know, she just dropped her off at that daycare and first day at a new job. And huh. uh, wow, yeah, and so uh, and it was weird because me and Sergeant Avery, the police officer, was with me, and uh, she just wanted to thank us for getting Bailey out. And I get emotional thinking about that too. I'm an emotional person, uh, that's okay. Uh, that is but, okay. Uh,
0: we all uh, just some said, of us know
1: it, yeah. And she just said, she goes, I could tell y'all were dads by the way, y'all were handling Bailey. So she just wanted to thank us for that. And I thought, here's a big old tough firefighter and a big old tough gun carrying top, and we're being comforted by a twenty year old single mom that just lost her only child, you know. Yeah.
2: So Yeah.
1: Yeah, I was pretty uh, I was pretty fortunate to be I don't know what the word is, to be associated with Aaron, I guess, yeah. or that we were linked together. So
2: how did that how did that um interaction um with the mom like Mm -hmm. you know within emotionally i know you said i i I get emotional now and you you were getting emotional just there talking about it but within like deep within how did that affect you um like meeting the mom and and the whole incident itself and your years of your career right like yeah yeah. Um,
1: yeah i think meeting aaron was uh I think putting a, and it's going to sound terrible, but I don't mean it bad. I don't know if I would have, I think I would have had the same feeling, but they probably would have been in this tent if I hadn't met her. And when I say that, I mean, now I put a face with this parent, you know, Uh, but like Bailey was just the name of fatality and I gave her to a paramedic and all that. Now I'm meeting her mother and her, her grandparents and her great grandparents and, you know, and, uh, I did that. So I think that's why I'm, I kind of stuck by Aaron. And I felt like I said, I took, <clears throat> I put a lot on myself. I took a lot of responsibility. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, um, irrational guilt is what one lady was telling me, you know, it's about when things we're not responsible for that we blame ourselves for, you know, yeah. that, that'll cause the brain's a jacked up muscle and, uh, yeah. and, uh, that was what it was. So I felt like I was this big brother, you know, and I needed to protect her. just like I would, I've got two sisters. just like I would protect my own blood sisters.
2: Do you know what I'm feeling from you? That at that time, um, and because of how emotional you're getting, but I get that feeling that from that time, you were actually allowing yourself to have a human experience, a human moment, right. Of all of, you know, Allowing yourself not to stuff it down, at that particular right. time, right? Uh, like, have you you'd stuffed it down for so long, um, of all years of experiences, and then of of those incidents that you, those calls you went down on, those bad calls, right? And then allowing yourself to have a human moment, like because you met the mom, you, it was like, whoa, all yeah, those I other, felt like,
1: yeah, I, I did. I think that was a like and and. I've really never thought about it like that, but that's perfectly said, like felt like that was a moment that it was okay to show my human side. Yes. And, uh, and it wouldn't be, it would be accepted, I guess, as a lack of a better term, but you know, it wouldn't be, I didn't have to worry about what people were thinking.
2: Yeah. You didn't have to worry about showing what what is perceived as weakness in first response that you yeah. were actually finally allowed to self, allow yourself to have that human moment. And I love that that you allowed yourself to have that. I think you needed that. Um do you think that was you know, this well, I'm I'm starting to jump in ahead, but I wanna get into that and follow up with that. You know, here's a whole crew, a whole city, right, involved, first responders all involved in this rescue, recovery, um, of this bombing and then what what did the the city do for the departments, you guys, to oh my God. help you? Was, what did they do for you, it was, if anything?
1: Uh, it was just their support. It was ridiculous the uh, support we got. It was uh, it was round the clock food being brought to the fire station. We didn't have to cook meal. We didn't cook a meal for for I know that whole month at least. You know, yeah. um, I mean, there'd be like stations like. Um, residential areas have their homeowners groups. Yeah, They show up at the fire station with a brand new like charcoal grill for the station. You know, just it was just like that all around. And then like the the media during the uh, the bombing, while uh, rescue efforts and recovery efforts were going on, they would say they would get on TV and say, "Hey, these guys and girls down here are working twelve hour shifts. It's raining because it rained, so they're digging through this. Their socks are getting holes so, up, so we need." They're talking about like, we need socks, we need this, we need. Well, then they'd have to come back on the news and say, "Okay, quit." We have because no so room much to put any more socks, any more shirts, any more food, any more. It was just that's that's the that's the kind of support uh, that we got from the from the citizens,
2: the citizens. And then do you do you feel that that sort of helped get you through those tough days after that, and weeks, oh. and then months after that?
1: Yeah. Um, support I'm a lot of my struggles came and I guess like most people, mine were self-inflicted of course, you know, because of my irrational thoughts about taking on the responsibility for all that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as far as the working through, yeah, it was, uh, it was weird. <laughs> kind of like you're, you're walking, you got to park so far away as you're walking down. It's like these line of people and they're clapping, you know, and, yeah, you know, and then when you come out, and you're walking back to your radio go back station, and they're clapping, and they want to, you know, take pictures with you, and they want to, you know, so it was a, but it, the the support was, uh, I mean, there was, I know a guy that has a foundation called uh, nine twelve September nine twelve because he says if the world could be like it was on September twelfth, how we all mm. came together, same thing, man. April nine, there was no social economic racial you name it there were yeah. no boundaries yeah everybody was because uh, it affected everybody yeah uh, that bomb did not discriminate you know yeah and
2: uh yeah absolutely so it was just uh, it was it was a
1: crazy uh, amazing time and um and uh everybody i think everybody they were they were sending us through debriefings when we would leave the site uh, I don't know anybody participating, and and when I talk now, I always talk to the chiefs and the leaders of departments to tell them what they've got to be the ones to. It's got to start at the top. Yes, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And one chief, uh, we were doing a deal, and he said, oh, "I think it really should come from the guys and the girls. Should start at the bottom." And that Chris Gallen said, "No, that's a coup. You know, <laughs> if it starts from the bottom, that's a coup." Yeah. And uh, so I always tell him, because I look back and I was a because I didn't know any better in 1995, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would, they'd say, go over here and go through your debriefing. And it was crazy. They would we go to debriefing after your debriefing, you went to the Southern building and the Oklahoma restaurant association happened to be having their yearly conference and convention. They just shut it down and brought everything to that building. We, there wasn't enough food. You couldn't pick from mm-hmm. Yeah, massage tables, uh, you know, you name it. You get massages you could get, but when we go in to talk. I'd always look back at my guys and we had one girl and I would say, Hey, we got to go in here. You know, I would always like downplay it and say, you know, we got to go in here. I'm not saying shit, but if y'all want to talk, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I look back now and think, God, what kind of message was I, was I sending? Yeah. Because, because I was putting on that front for the people that were above me, my superiors. Yes. And here I was their station officer. So their darn sure not gonna think about showing weakness to their station or to their, you know, to their officer.
2: Yeah. Or talk and about then, what they were really
1: feeling. You know? Right. Now yeah. I'm thinking about how much harder it is for the females on the job. <laughs> they broke yeah. that barrier of this male dominated job. Yeah. To uh and so one moment everybody goes, I told you she couldn't hack it, you know. So yes. So I felt like I just kind of doubled down on all that with uh not I, I complete ignorance, I guess. I probably shouldn't, but I will. You know, because yeah. I just didn't know any better. I don't
2: exactly I was just gonna say you didn't know any better, right? That's what you were as you said earlier on in the conversation, yeah. That's what you were brought up in, right? That's the that's how you were brought up in, in, in the fire as a young fireman. And I was just gonna ask that. You know, you, you had said when the support from the city and um and the citizens um around you, there was just constantly food being brought, we didn't have to cook for a while and I was like mm-hmm. Well, I wonder what his the administration. I wonder what the administration did to support the men and women who were out there, right, Um, in in the out in the field, right, doing doing your job every day, and what support they offered you. So there was debriefing, but obviously you didn't take it. You didn't take advantage of it because they didn't talk. Did it feel? Did it feel like it was like a check mark? Like this is what we need to do. So um, it wasn't sort of. Check the box. Check the box off. Yeah, yeah. checking the box off. And,
1: and, and I think it was um, – I don't know if – it would probably wouldn't have been any better, but um, back then, you know, there weren't peer support groups like there are now. No. Yeah. Uh, now it's okay to go talk to a buddy, you know, about yeah. it it's, uh, back then, but it was even the fact then it was even worse because our CISD teams and M team, they didn't bring anybody in. It was our own people. Yeah. Well – well darn you're not going here. And there was, supposedly there was an incident where somebody went in there and opened up, spilled their guts, and and then I went back to the it. boss Somebody, you know, went back to their station and told. So it was, you know. Yeah. Fire stations, fire departments like a beauty shop, you know. <laughs> you get the rumors going and yeah. finger pointing and talking about. It. And yeah. so that really kind of shut everything down. But it was uh administration yeah. was uh and just like you know, they did what they knew what they thought was best
0: the best they They were there yeah
1: yeah and 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 in my case it was uh um it was really i had i had a ton of support from administration it was uh it was almost overly too much support yeah (laughs) i mean you know so because i felt like i and i was um no fire you don't like to be singled out yeah. And that was another thing. That was the three things I battled the most, I guess, with all that was going on was the fact that I was the last one to hold Aaron's baby. Yeah. Um, she couldn't grieve privately because of that photo, which I felt responsible for, which, you know, and then um and then the fact that being singled out and uh but and it makes my hair stand up when I even talk about it. That the support I got from the guys and girls on the fire department was insane it was crazy uh wow. the positive support that i got
2: yeah did you have a lot did you have guilt for that from that from that you, you said she wasn't allowed to grieve privately was that oh, guilt yeah. there for you that was
1: that was that was some of my biggest stumbling blocks uh was uh but you know of course not telling anybody and hiding it yeah but that was some of my biggest stumbling blocks was the uh was the guilt uh the irrational guilt i put on myself for that photo and yeah. um the way it affected you know i just because i think i think you know how how different would aaron's life have been i mean she still lost her one-year-old daughter yeah which turned one-year-old the day before the bombing by the way i didn't tell you know <sighs> start on april 18th Wow. and uh so i just think how much different her grieving would have been uh because she 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 struggled she was like me she got a lot of attention she didn't want um there was some infighting amongst the families because Bailey was, you know, everywhere. Her picture yeah. was everywhere. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, I took uh, that weight on me, pretty heavy. But uh,
2: can I elaborate on that a little bit? You yeah, said that sure. weight on me I'm, pretty I'm,
1: heavy. I'm always willing to learn. <laughs> yeah,
2: I I weighed on that weight on me pretty heavy. Share with us what that felt like to you. What where did that take you?
1: Oh dark um i think that's why i felt like um felt like i always need to be there for aaron um, yeah. almost to the fact to maybe where i put my own family on the back burner um to go because you know if aaron was uh it wouldn't be like aaron would call and say hey i'm having a bad time can you come over it wasn't like that but anything aaron was going to do um any kind of interview or if she needed to do this or that, I'd say, Hey, I got it. I got it. I'll take care of it. You, you know, you hang with your family. I'll go do this. I'll go do that. Yes. I'll do that. When I really didn't want to do another interview, she would call and say, Hey, I'm going to do this interview. Would you do it? So I felt like I just had it. So that was just, uh, that was just kind of the role I took on for, for several years. And uh, um, our public information officer at the time, old fire chief named John Hanson, he I struggled too, like I said, being singled out, you know, and uh yeah. he was the best. And uh he told me uh he said, let me tell you something, Chris. He said, he said, people don't look at that and go, hey, that's Chris Fields holding a baby. He said, everybody, and the way he said I look at it, him, he said, I see that as a first responder. Yeah, you're in a you're in firefighter gear, but you're representing the law enforcement, the ambulance, the even the citizens that came down there and helped, he said, that's who you are. He said, that's what that photo is. It's not Chris Fields. He said, and Bailey represents the innocence that was lost that day. Yeah. Whether old, young, uh, whether it be a traumatic injury. He said, so. And when I kind of put it in that perspective, yeah. For me, that was a that was a that was a huge uh, that was a huge hurdle for me to get over. Yeah. Uh, and I, like I say, it's not, it doesn't define me. It's always going to be attached to me. I know that. Yeah. And probably my, my, when I'm dead and gone on the anniversary, my sons will probably ask about it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so it's just, you know, it's just something I've, uh, through, you know, hitting rock bottom and getting the counseling I needed. You know, it's just one of them. It's just part of. My
2: life So so let's share a little bit about that I know you said that took me to a dark place And you took on the responsibility That had to be like So overwhelming Um, You know, the more and more That, as you said I took on another interview that I did not want to To do Right Um, But you were taking that off um, That burden off Erin Mom of Bailey And so (sighs) When, where was your breaking point, like, of you saying, like, <laughs> you know, where, where did it, where did, where was it that you're like, I can't do this anymore? Like, was there a breaking point, like, for you? Like, oh, where you uh, said, I needed to get counseling, but where was it that it got so overwhelming that you had to say, I can't do unfortunately, this anymore?
1: Unfortunately, me my breaking point was like, seven or eight years down the road. After? Is, oh, Yeah. Oh That's my how good goodness. I, was that I just put on the Chris Fields. I'm always the cut up guy. You know, I'm the funny dude. I'm holy, the center holy, of attention. Holy. I don't mind the center of attention when I want to be the center of attention, you know, uh, when I want to be the funny guy. So it was just one of them deals that I, uh, man, I just, and you know, and between that time and then when I finally hit rock bottom and I'll, and I'll go right through that, I'll talk about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I buried, uh, two or three more brothers lost in the line of duty, you know, and, and, you know, and of course you're making the everyday calls, you're making the suicides and the, you know, cutting 16 year olds out of car wrecks and mm-hmm. um the uh, everyday calls, the medical calls, you know, so it was just, um, and I was, I was so good at uh, putting on that, you know, that, what we call the mask, put on the mask yes. uh, to go to the fire station. Yep. And I, I tell you the breaking point was in, uh golly, it was almost, 10 years and uh we were putting a pool in our backyard and uh i was helping the guys we're going to expand the patio out and i was helping them break concrete and it started to rain and it rained the night of the oklahoma city bombing while we were in there searching yeah and when it started to rain i was just outside the porch cover and i caught a just a brief smell of wet concrete dust and as soon as that smell hit my nose and went to my brain, I said, man, that smells just like the Oklahoma City bombing. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, like, freak out or drop to my knees. It was just implanted in my brain. I said, that smells just like being inside the building. Well, And I can pinpoint that as a day. And what I did skip over was during that seven, eight, nine years with going back to Forest Station, I was having these what I was calling, I just thought, "Eh, ah, middle-age crisis, you know, maybe I need a Corvette or something. I don't know. But it was like, you know, all these little mini bouts of depression and isolation and all this kind of stuff. And I just, you know, sucked it up, went to work. And, but that day I can pinpoint that as the day when things really, um, started to intensify. I say intensify like my, my depression was like, I couldn't even pull myself out of it or my Mm -hmm. isolation to where like, um, at the fire station, uh, we make a call, get back. I come out to eat. I'm going back to my office. I'm just hanging out in my office. I'm not out there with the guys and the girls. Mm-hmm. Um, at home, I'm not involved with my kids as much as I was. I'm not showing, not, uh, not, t- I always took off work or paid somebody to come in. And so I go to all their sporting events, you know, I yeah. coached one of them. I quit doing that. I just wanted to, and excuse me, my anger and my temper and, uh, Me and the wife started fighting because she was, she didn't know what it was. And that's why I so strongly encourage spouses of first responders to go to this stuff with them. So they, so they, so they know what they're seeing or they know. And I always tell people, and sometimes I get a strange look and I say, because there are things that they can say and there's things they shouldn't say, Mm -hmm. you know? And, but I tell the first responders too, trauma is trauma. So don't come home from bad shit because you cut a 16 year old out of a car. And you don't want to talk about your wife. You say you had a bad shift and she says, well, I had a second grader throw up on me today and you are going to go, Oh really? That's your trauma. You're going to compare, you know? So that's the kind of stuff we got into, you know, comparing trauma or I was, she wasn't. And trauma is trauma, you know, what's traumatic to me is not to you and vice versa. But anyway, things here got to a a point to where um, my wife said, Cause she didn't know what to do. She would called people and she finally said, told me, she said, you need to make a phone call to the chaplain or to somebody and do something, or you need to pack your stuff and get out because I'm not going to live like this. Yeah. And, uh, well, I got out. <laughs> uh, when I tell my story, I tell people I had these two choices. I had these, you know, I had pride and ego and I had the support of my Family and all that, and I chose, you know, pride and ego, and separated. And um, and I tell people, it's I was so good at manipulating and putting on this mask that we were separated uh, for 17 months. And unless you were really tight with us, there's a lot of people on the fire administration. Nobody ever knew we were separated. 17 months. That's how good I was at. Now her friends and stuff knew, but nobody knew I was leaving the fire station and going to an apartment I was living in, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so it was just, uh, it was 17 months of me out, uh, running around drinking, had a extramarital affair that I was publicly didn't care. I was to the point to where, and I tell people, you know, in the end, I was diagnosed with, you know, PTSD, anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, checked all the boxes, but I don't, that's not why I did all it crap uh you just get to a point to where you know it's about you you don't care about the repercussions i want to make sure that's what made me feel good at that time yeah you know i had a doctor who was buddy who was uh if i needed i had unlimited xanax if i needed it you know and uh uh, that's what you were
2: uh, doing to cope
1: exactly that's how i got you didn't know you, you
2: probably didn't know it at the time but that's what you were doing to cope
1: Yeah. To get to each day. So I got up and put on that happy face and went to the station. And so, you know, and that was, you know, 17 months of just, you know, humiliating my family and my, you know, left home and left my, my oldest when he was 16 then. So I leave my 16 year old son at home to, there you go. Be the man of the house at 16 uh, or 17, take care of your mother, make sure your little brother's good. Um, uh, you know, I'll get by when I can't, you know, just kind of one little deal. I think, I think about it and it's just, it's, it's one of probably the most embarrassing things I talk about is those. And people say, well, 17 months I, in a whole life. That's not much. You don't think, but that's 17 months, man, that I, I can't get back. Said things that no children should have to hear mm. one parent say about the other, yeah. you know, and my sons had to hear that. I can't take it back. Yeah, I've been forgiven and I know that, but and that's still some of my I try to say today I don't have any bad days but I have some days that are worse than others and that's usually oh. when um I found out that forgiving yourself is the hardest thing in the world. <laughs> it,
2: oh yeah. It is
1: the most difficult thing to do. So I still I still fight with that but it uh it all culminated uh, man I was and I know it's cliche but I was sick and tired of being sick and tired and I just had that I never sat down and said I'm gonna get a gun, or I'm gonna, you know, put a bullet in my brain, or whatever. I never that those thoughts never entered my mind as a way. But when I look back now, I'm going, yeah, that's what I was doing. I was trying to drink myself to something, you know, help something happen. And then one night I did. I took what I thought would be enough Xanax, enough alcohol that if I didn't wake up, you know, Cheryl could uh, get a good man and be a good father, and people could just move on because. As I was laying there and swallowing my self-pity, I, I was I was real about it too. I was thinking, man, I had put, <clears throat> got dry, put so many people's lives on hold because they're all trying to help me, you yeah. know. They want to be helped, you yeah. know. And and that's another thing I always talk about is how everybody always worries about the first responder. We get about, forget about the families and what it's doing to the families. Yep. But yeah. I was getting my counseling sitting in a strip bar drinking beer during the afternoon with other, you know, firefighters that were in the same world I was in. Yes. Because we, we told each other we were okay. We yeah. were doing what we wanted to do and yeah. it was okay. So I, um,
2: I hear, I hear you saying Chris like that, you know, this is probably one of the most embarrassing things when I talk about, you know, in my, in my, um when I'm doing my talks, right. Yeah. Um, is talking about this, this part of my life, Um, you know, how, how sort of maybe reckless I was, right? Um, with with dealing the with the family part. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't care. Um it was my ego and that type of stuff. And that's sort of the embarrassing part of it for you. But I actually feel it's probably really very relatable. I know our listeners, all, all our listeners are who's listening in, and any other talks that you've done, that's probably one of the most relatable, honest, right, things that you actually say you know, is right. accepting. This is this is how I was acting. And this is what right. I did. Um, and maybe I didn't even realise it at the time that was going on, but everyone else around me, people who loved me, did. They noticed it. Right. Um, and you didn't. When did it come well, to a stage then that you did notice? When, I, I, I'm, I'm, when did it come to a stage that you did say I need help?
1: Um... Well, and I was going to tell you another thing I learned too is that m- mamas are always right. So, um,
2: Oh, mama, 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 got hold of you.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, mom's a prayer warrior lady. And yeah. you know, she just, I don't know she just, you know, even stuff, I look back and she said, I remember when I was little, she'd say, Hey, if you say mean things, you can't take it back. It's like when you squeeze toothpaste out of the tube, you can't put it back. In. I can. And I thought, why is that popping in my head when I'm 40 something years old? Yeah. But, uh, but no, that, that, when I, that night I tried to uh, take all the Xanax and drink all the crown roll I could get in my system. Um, I woke up the next morning and I was like, I was laying on the uh, living room floor of my apartment. And, uh, which sadly wasn't much bigger than this room I'm in right here. And uh, I was just laying and I thought, my God, I said, there is no way this, I, I it just hit me. I just like, this is not where I'm supposed to be. I said, this is not my purpose. And I, when I say purpose, I didn't mean that I'm blessed now to get to go speak and everything. I meant just about being a, a good father and a good husband and a friend. I wasn't, I wasn't doing any of those three things. You know, anybody was trying to help me. I was giving them the bird, tell them to F off, you know? And yeah. so, uh, but uh, so I called uh, my wife, Cheryl and said, uh, I want to, I picked up the phone. Like, what do you want? I mean our conversations weren't real friendly at that point. And uh I just told her, I said, I want to come home. And I don't know where I'd be today or where I wouldn't be today if she hadn't said her exact words were come on. And uh like I said, I don't know where I would be or and uh you know, and I I tell everybody it's not like it ends there and everything was, you know,
2: Uh, roses. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It was uh it was uh I went to uh came back called our got back home called our fire department chaplain and got into a place out in california called uh wcpr west coast post-traumatic retreat i believe and uh went out there and uh uh got some counseling and 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 kind of doing it to say look what i'm doing and kind of doing it for everybody really wasn't so when I got back home, I didn't do any of the follow-up work. I mean, I didn't seek out another clinician. I didn't seek out. So I got to go back, and uh, because uh, even my wife said, she said, and and she if she was in here, she would immediately tell you she had a lot of issues, a lot of stuff going on too, not just me. But she just said, I'm not ready for you to be back here yet. So I moved in with my mom and dad for. I don't know. It's probably another three or four months or longer. I don't know. She can tell you exactly. (laughs) And, uh, exactly how many days. Uh, so I went back, was introduced to EMDR, um, therapy came back to Oklahoma was doing it for me because I want to be able to take care of everybody around me. So I knew I had to take care of me. If I wanted to do that. Yeah. I was trying to take care of everybody by just going and saying, Oh, look, he went and got counseling, everything, Mm -hmm. you know, um, So came back and and found a clinician here named Kathy Thomas, who's my superhero, and uh, was doing EMDR, you know, uh, therapy with her, and uh, me and Cheryl started to go. We were going to counseling separate, and we started going to marriage counseling together, and that's been um, since 2000. I think I moved back home and everything since 2011 or 2012, and man, it's just been. It's been crazy, crazy good. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but the, and I think the main thing I tell you is the reason, it's not because uh, I'm 100% better and she's one, but the only thing we learned to do was communicate, oh. period. That's the only thing that's really changed is our, is our communication wow. about what we're feeling and going through.
2: So being able to talk about it, right? Yep. And so yeah. even like you know, um and you were still a firefighter at that time when you when you when you started yeah. to Yeah, I you got were back still from,
1: when I got back from treatment I did uh I did six more years. Six more years yeah, after that. Yeah. So
2: your apartment did your department or your administration supported mm-hmm. you through that
1: also? Oh, they they did and
2: um, And you were more open within your department about that?
1: Uh, I was that, that's that's my favorite part of the story is when I uh when I got back to work I had, I had left the rigs for a while and took a job in, uh, um, special operations where I messed with like the training of our underwater dive and hazmat and our yeah. team and all that. Yeah. And I just, I, I wanted to go back to the rigs, man, I'm missing it. And so, uh, uh, fire chief, this friend of mine, and uh, I told him, I said, Hey, man, I, if there's any openings, I won't get back to the, back to the rigs. And I had called a friend of mine that was the station officer at the station. It's just like two miles from my house. And uh, Richard Bell. And I said, hey, when you – I knew he was getting very close to retire. And I said, when are you retiring? He goes, well, I'm kicking around probably about six miles. I said, let's make a deal here. Don't put that out. Let me know when you're going to because I'm going to – so he let me know. Didn't put it out. Nobody else knew. I called the fire. She said, hey, Richard's retiring on this day. So I just (laughs) – they fixed me up. I got to go to that station with – seven of the greatest guys in the world. Uh, probably wouldn't have made it those last five without them, their support. But first thing I did though, was I, uh, I, after breakfast one morning, I just told them, I said, Hey, I'm going to take about 30 minutes here and tell y'all where I've been, what's been going on and why I went there. This and, is all the, all your so peers, all, I, like, I went, all
2: the men and women that you worked with.
1: Yeah. And I was just telling this cause I said, I don't want you to go there. Mm. I want you to, I want you to be able to be smart enough, brave enough, to reach out before the wheels fall off because I don't when I speak I don't try to say you're not going to experience trauma I can't say that in this right. first responder world you going to experience trauma um but you don't have to wait till the wheels you know fall off you know and it's not necessarily about the trauma it's about how we carry it and mm-hmm. uh you know and I've learned a bunch man I've learned I go back to some of the most smoke smoke eaters and uh that Chris Scallon that we talked about before we went on yeah um uh, he's a clinician guy also. And like he says, if the departments will start looking at people and say, what's wrong with them after a call and instead, and start saying what happened to them, you know, something in their life or something, uh, you know, and uh, that hit close to home. I had a new, we had a new boy, new guy, new person on the back of the rig. And uh, we made that routine call I talked about where somebody passed away in their sleep middle of the night. Uh, I mean, routine, like, all the time when you go on shift change. And, uh, I noticed he was really struggling with it. I mean, big time. this was years ago back when before I was softer and gentler. And, uh, but, uh, I knew he was struggling with it. And we were talking, uh, me and the other guy and I said, what well, if that call right there gets him, he's going to have a long 20, 25 year career. Yeah. That's every day. Yes. Yeah. And, um, years later talking to him about it and everything, I was honest with him. I told him about it. This was like, six years ago we were talking about it. and he said he remembers it was one of his first calls well when he was like 11 or 12 he found his grandfather passed away so when he went in there in that bedroom and saw that elderly gentleman it took him back to that
2: triggered yeah and i thought
1: ding 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 you know yeah so it wasn't about the call it was what, what's wrong with him is what happened to him yeah so,
2: do you know what, yeah. Chris, what I, I felt when you when you said that, you know, when you went back and, and you were sitting down and you were at the table with the guys and you said, I'm going to talk for 30 minutes and tell you what's been going on. Yeah. I felt it was like um, that finally, 20 odd years yeah. or 25 years, you were finally allowing yourself to talk about, like un- unpack all of that yeah. stuff that you were stuffing down for twenty five years. Not only from the bombing, right? Um and I know that probably sparked a lot of stuff from it, even right. years later. But it was finally allowing yourself to sort of unpack um all of that stuff from the twenty five years plus that you had dealt with. Like even from that day one, you know? Yeah. It felt um, good. <laughs> yeah. And uh, like unpacking it all in that thirty minutes that you said you were allowing yourself yeah. to talk to them yeah, about.
1: And I didn't become like a counselor or anything but it was I could tell that it changed the mindset at the station a little bit because everybody was more open to if we got back from um, a call that you know not even traumatic but something you could know um a sick really sick child or something you know it didn't have to be a traumatic and death or anything but everybody was more open to say you know either god dang that thing's eating me up or I wonder how she's doing or you know and uh, so we would sit down and You know, we didn't counsel, we didn't, but it was just, uh, that's what I tell people too. Sometimes you just need to talk to somebody. It doesn't mean you're going to be diagnosed with anything. It doesn't mean you're going to have to go away for treatment. It's just getting it off your chest with somebody that knows.
2: Yes, and absolutely, just sat to sitting around that table. Culturally competent
1: clinicians, you know. Yeah, and not only that,
2: but someone that's your peer, right, sitting at the table beside you, being able to say, wow, that's eating me up. Yeah, me too. You know what I mean? Man. Yes, me too. It's, it's yeah. eating me up too. And just knowing that yeah. someone else is going through that with you, that you're not the only one that's sitting there. Because I think for a lot of years, you know, if you were feeling it, it was eating you up yeah. and you didn't say it, but someone else was on that call with you and they seemed okay, well, I'm not going to talk about it. So you end up stuffing yeah. it down. Um, man, I, I, I think that from that day, it, was, it feels for me, that you probably changed the culture in your department right there and then well, from having that conversation in
1: that, in that little station in my in my station there was uh eight or ten of us there on a shift uh on my shift it i d- it definitely changed the culture a little bit because yeah it, uh you know it was uh from what was changed, being talked it about after the attitude and it changed the machismo a little bit you know yeah you can still be machismo and <laughs> macho yeah. firefighter and have feelings yeah. Yeah, but where
0: where are they now and and where are they going and will they have stations and groups of their own? Um I I think I think that sounds like a really impactful moment and an impactful event because that spreads through the culture in the same way that the other stuff that that you described really well does. Those cultural norms that take shape. Mm-hmm. And and I think we all understand why um because you go to do this job, we're called to service, right? Most most people that find themselves working as a first responder and then you get there and something's bothering you. And and you hear, you know, one of our other guests said, you know, hey, yeah. kid, what did you think you were going to see? There's a lot more of that coming, right? And that was yeah. a common attitude that spread through the stations for reasons that, that I think make sense because the job is important. Somebody has to answer those calls. We want to be the ones doing it for reasons that are good right. and moral and just. And what are we going to say now that we can't?
1: And yeah. and yeah. you
0: made another, I think, really, really good point a moment ago, like talking about it in the stations, normalizing that. Not only does it mean that you're not going to get diagnosed and have to go off somewhere, you're less likely to face those yeah. <laughs> outcomes exactly. by, by, you know, letting that steam off and being able to relate to to somebody else and, and say, yeah, you know, I this happened and, uh, and, and I'm feeling a little off. Hey, me too. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, those, those beliefs and uh, that have been around the stations for forever. And now we know more as a culture, we know more about mental health. We know more about trauma. We know more about the human condition and, uh, you know, man, it's a beautiful thing to see it, to see it grow. And that's a I think a beautiful moment that, that you yeah. just, that you just
2: shared. Powerful moment. Yeah, for think, sure. Yeah. And
1: you know, like Doug Monda, which y'all know, yeah. like Doug says, you know, they always, they prepare us with these, you know, they make sure we're here. They don't ever prepare, you know, this, it's like the advertisement for when they're going to hire, you know, it's the flashing lights and it's the firefighter getting the pat on the back and the yeah. hero stuff and the, you know, and then next thing you know, you're in the stepping in somebody's, you know, guts or, you know, whatever. So it's, yeah, it's, uh, they, they, yeah, I was in the best physical shape of my life when I came out of rookie school, Mm. Uh, but didn't know that I need to be training this one too. But I see that shifting. I see, I keep Oklahoma city now and their rookie schools, they have a day of, uh, I know it's just a day, but Hey, you got to walk before you can run. Yes. They have a day. They have a day of what they all, they have clinicians in, they talk culturally competent clinicians, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, that, uh, and, uh, and they have a they have another day it's pretty cool which uh they have financial planners come in yeah and talk to these young ones about you know hey i know you're 21 22 and you're making good money and uh we didn't have to have them when i started i started out at 12,000 a year in 1985 so i didn't need a financial planner i knew i had to save money yeah. but, uh, but uh yeah so you can see uh and i think this younger generation is a little more open and accepting to you know, talking to people yeah. if they feel in a certain way. So, yeah. and those, two of those guys that were at the table when I thought they're station officers now, and uh I still talk to a few of them, and I guess I never thought about it. Like when I see my old coaches and my old chiefs, I still call them coach and chief because that's, to me, that's, I always thought, to me, that's just, they earned it. That's a sign of respect, you know? Yeah. And I didn't even think about it, and I, I guess I don't pay attention. But Cheryl said, "You notice all those guys when they see you, they go, hey, Mage.' Because you've been for uh, seven years, they still call you Mage and all that." said, yeah, I love that. Yeah, I said I really never even thought about it or noticed it. So yeah, I love so that. It was and a good thing. I love that
2: <laughs> you learned not only through you know the the therapy, like the thought talk therapies, um, that you you know you went through, you know yourself, and then with your wife together. That learned yep. how to communicate. I heard you saying that we learned how to communicate, and that sort of you were able to take that into your your department with you, communicating, not stuffing it down anymore, and um, and that had to feel really good for you, like a new, a new lease of hey, this is me, this is this is me, and I'm and I'm yeah. going to be doing this going forward. So yeah, it was.
1: A, yeah, I'm sorry. No, you go I ahead. I was gonna say it was. It was. It was a, a, a kind of a new lease on life to be able to know that I can talk to her, but it's also now if, if I don't feel like talking it, now, she doesn't think she, you know, used to, I didn't talk to her. She thought she was a problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now I can say, I'm good. I just have one of those days. Give me, give me 20 minutes here in my office in the dark. I just want to sit here and yeah. I need to cry. I'll cry. If I'll do whatever. But I just need Then we can, let me bed you out for a few. And then we can go shop or do whatever you want to do. Yeah. You know, to where 20 years ago, I would have never said that. I'd no. have got up and went wherever she wanted to go. Been pissed off about it, and she would have thought she was the problem. And so, so now it's easier just to say, "Yeah, no, I don't want to go." Yeah, you know? absolutely. So, yeah, and
2: yeah. that's that's a whole wonderful part of it is that uh, I'm taking from it is that that communication There's so many first responders yeah. who are listening, and and I know for a fact, you know, one of them previously just shared on on a, a previous interview, a young a young fire a young policeman. And he, he says, you know, we're there for so many um, people in our communities. We're there. We're there to serve them. We're there to make their day a little bit better, right? And, um, and we try to sort of leave our boots at the door, right, and not bring those hard days home with us. But when we walk in that door, we're not there for the ones right. who, who need us at home. Yeah, and and that's our families and our children, right? And um, it sort of ma- it really made me think about that. Wow, you know they aren't so like what are you what are you doing? And it's again like getting pissed off or irritated or just saying, you know, I don't want to go there and not participating in family mm-hmm. events and family stuff and engaging at the dinner table or whatever yeah. it might be because you're just so stuck in your own um, what you're going through, right? And no one else understands. Um, And I love that you're sort of really talking about the families because that's something that I am very, very big on is like, you know, there's a first responder. Like now when you start to get help and you're starting to heal and recover. And if your wife wasn't part of it, she's sort of stuck in that space there. And probably some resentment could you know, start involved from her end. Like, oh, I, you're getting help. And now I'm stuck with all of this that I'm still yeah. where you were when you were struggling, you know? Yeah. So I love that families, you know, you're talking about that families being involved. Um, that's something, you know. I want to see more of in the apartments. I'd love oh, departments to be bringing families in and and getting them involved and 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 as you said the spouses to be really uh, you know go to those events with your first responder um who you love and and bring the families in and and get involved in that and know what's going on and stay connected with all of that and hopefully keeping that door of communication open and not letting it close in the first place mm. and not be right. yeah. yeah not letting it close and and, and not be afraid to Ask those questions. I notice something is going on with you and I'm concerned. Can we talk about it? And, you know, not be afraid to let it go on that it gets to a, such yeah. a stage that, you know, there's divorce or separation, you know, right. as and, you and said. Be that
1: person that's not afraid to ask somebody if they're okay either. You know? Yeah. Like yeah. you said. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so. absolutely. So, so, um, Chris, you, you now taking, you know, now you're tired. Right. And um, you, you're a public speaker now. You go out speaking and you, you also have your own podcast. Share with our listeners about that, where they can sort of find some of they want to know more information about you and what you do. Share with us about that.
1: Yeah. It's uh trauma behind the badge. And uh, I've got a shirt on. You're going to model. So this is a small one. I hope it's the, the saying, our, our kind I can of our see. Little model we're saying is motivation through tough conversations. Yeah. um trauma behind the badge is not family friendly it's <laughs> it's like uh well you've met doug and raul so you yeah. know it can't be too family friendly yeah um,
2: <laughs> they f bomb a lot just like, for our listeners <laughs> yeah it's like
1: sitting there yes yeah. it's like sitting around the fire station table or out in the back lot of the yeah. station or whatever you know wherever they gather and um it's just real hard core conversations um like i said not family friendly uh they can go to um our, our website is uh www.traumabehindthebadge.us and uh you can sign up there and you'll get a link to when we do a uh, zoom kind of webinar or podcast we want to call it yeah and then uh we're transitioning over to where you can get them on uh we have on YouTube and we do Facebook when we do them, we do Facebook live and YouTube and yeah. we have a Facebook page and then we're transitioning into Spotify. So you can uh, get them. We're trying to get all of our previous library into Spotify, Yeah. but you can mm-hmm. just do John behind the badge um, on Spotify and find some of our old stuff. But it's uh, I'm the only firefighter. It's me and four cops, retired cops. And uh, yeah, all of them, have amazing stories and they've done amazing things throughout their career. Yeah. We've got our bios on our webpage. Yeah. You read some of the stuff these guys have done and uh, always tell people they're just uh, they're, they're badasses, but they have huge hearts. Oh,
2: absolutely. Know? Badasses. Cause we went to one of their seminars with, with Doug and Raul yeah. and, and oh my God, I, I, I said it to, to Raul. I was so surprised when he did, when we didn't interview, he was very soft-spoken and very gentle. And then on this, Thing. It was like, it made me jump in my chair because oh, he was yeah. like, his, in his your face. So... Yeah, he projects his voice so loud and he was in their faces and he was, you know, he was all over. And I was like, whoa. And, well, I tell um,
1: people, when he, anytime me and him, me and Raul, which we've done a few times, we speak together, well, I always tell people, I do not go after Raul. I said, <laughs> I said that would be like having Metallica first, then have air supply come out. I'm air supply. He's Metallica. So yeah. I will not I will not go on <laughs> yeah. after all, yeah, ever. He was so. yeah,
2: he's like yeah, he's a very, very um projected and he has presence, he's a big guy, you know, a yeah. big burly and guy.
1: Doug Doug's very soft spoken. He
2: is very soft spoken. And he did and, go after and, Raul that time when we did see them. Yeah, yeah.
1: and then uh Scallon is oof, scowling is scowling that's all i can say it is uh <laughs> if, if if the f-bomb offends you don't don't even yeah don't so, even check us so out so what
2: type of share with our listeners because i i have listened in a couple of times what type of topics do you talk about you don't only talk about mental health and stuff like that you talk about all a whole wide range of stuff give us some yeah, of the we, ideas uh, of what you talk about
1: yeah well um we do we have uh we have guests on like y'all do have you know amazing stories and yeah. talk about their road to recovery or in whatever you yeah. want to talk about. Um, we just did one a couple of weeks ago about retirement, about how to prepare yourself for retirement and what yeah. retirement's like. You I know, watched when that you one. The, yeah. When you leave that, you know, that chaotic world to, you know, now you're home folding towels every day or whatever you do, that, that's an adjustment. Yeah, uh, We're doing one next Tuesday. It's it's just us guys talking and we're talking about the uh, the good and the bad of the growth in the mental health first responder world, because there's some, there's some seedy people out there. Yeah. um, And there's great people. Yeah. And sometimes the great people don't get the shot. They, you know, they get, they get looped in with the CD. It's just one of those things, you know, it takes one bad apple to, you know, we've had uh, uh, clinicians on, we've had them talk about sleep, sleep deprivation and uh, other, you know, just other topics that affect, first responders. Yeah. Uh, I think we're trying to get a guy on that uh, is more into the, uh, you know, like the health and fitness. Cause we don't want to just talk about retirement because tell our stories. We want to talk about what you can do throughout your career to, you know, physical health is, and it's tied right into mental health and vice versa. Yes. And so we just cover all, it's not always gloom and doom. Yeah. Uh, We've had shows before where us four or five get on there and we just, you just shit for an hour. It's just talk. Pardon my friends, we just, we just, yeah. whatever, we talk about what we've been doing uh, and what things we got coming up, and it turns into some crazy banter. And uh, so, and they always pick on me because I'm the only firefighter. So, <laughs> and I'm from Oklahoma. So they call me Tiger King. And, you know, so, but, but it's always, always a good time. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: I did. I did listen into that one with the retirement one, and and definitely, I mean, it makes so much sense. You know, here you are, all like very high paced. Um, I mean, all of you have um, great careers, all under your belt, and so much experience, and then coming into retirement, and then you know. What next? Like you know, stops. what what next? And and how you yeah. they talked about in that like how you know they weren't prepared for retirement um, coming out of that. And uh, it was very interesting to listen. So I would encourage our listeners to get on there and and start following yeah. you guys, trauma behind the badge. And uh, you yes. also do public speaking, right? You go out to different seminars, just like Raoul and Doug, right? They go out there. Yes. Tell us about that. And how do you get booked? And how do you get those engagements? And
1: um uh, usually they contact me through the um WW through the trauma behind the back yeah. uh, website there's a contact form yeah and they'll reach out through there I'm also a part of a uh I'm gonna say it wrong let me look it up real quick oh I think it's called it's a uh, Eagle Rise speakers and it's a guy named Jason Redman. who's a, a former Navy seal who um was uh Shot and a bullet. I mean, he's got the he sells these shirts and it's a skull x ray, but it's where the bullet in his skull was cracked. And well, he was like dead on the battlefield. And so, but he runs this deal called E. So, I get a few bookings through there. And a lot of them, to be honest with you, is uh when I get done speaking, I always leave all my contact information. I give out my personal cell in case somebody's in crisis. And yes, I tell them I may not have the answer, but between me and Raul and Doug and yeah. You know, now I put y'all down as a connection now and a, yeah. and a you know, Thank you. we'll get you an answer. We'll get you the help. And so a lot of times people will contact me that way. Like they were there at a deal I was speaking at and say, Hey, I heard you speak. I'm with this group. Would you come speak? And so, yeah. And, like and I
2: know you just went to, you just got back. You were, you were at the um the qual foundation. You were based up in here and, yep. and on the Cape. Right. And, uh, you were with Doug down there. And did you get to speak at, at that organizing? That was a whole mental health conference going on. Down yeah, there. Yeah, right?
1: that was uh, it's the largest mental health conference in the, in the world. Um, uh, hmm. and it's, uh, like, uh, Alanis Morissette was the key opening keynote, you know, and then like Demi Lovato spoke and, uh, yeah. um, and I know who Demi Lovato is because of my kids. I don't listen to <laughs> me a lot. But, uh, I love Alanis Morissette. Uh, but um, we were on a panel, me and Doug were on a panel together for the Quell Foundation. Cause I was part of their, uh, was part of their documentary that yeah. they did called lifting the mask. Lifting the mask. And yeah. Uh, yeah so we were on a, a panel and Doug with survive first and Quell do a lot of stuff together. Yeah. And so, and Doug's great at that stuff on the panels and stuff. So yeah. uh Kevin invited us down there to be part of that. Uh, it was huge. Yeah. Never seen so many people yeah. at a conference, really. Yeah. Uh, well, you're getting... My biggest crowd was like 800 I've ever spoken in front of, or 900. But this thing was just huge.
2: Yeah. Hmm. Well, you're still you're getting a message out there, and you're getting your story out there. And every story that's shared, um, you never know who's listening yes. mm-hmm. that can relate with that story. Um, and and that's amazing. We are going to be actually interviewing Kevin from from Quell Foundation um, in oh. January. Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna have him on in a, oh, in a cool. couple of weeks time. Yeah, and uh, so I'm looking forward to that conversation too. Um, well, wow, I mean, what an amazing story! Um, but I want to ask you one thing um, before okay. we start to sign off tonight and finish up for the evening. I'm I'm so happy to be able to start to get to meet you and hear your story. And I can see in your face you have that genuine smile um that when you do smile you do have that genuine smile about you I like it I like it a lot um I want to ask you how are you doing now
1: man damn-tastic I know it's uh it, it really is it's um like I said I still have some days where um I stay pretty busy but every now and then I'll just be like driving down the road and I'll be it actually I'll be thinking about how things are so great right now. Yeah. And then I'll say, you almost missed out on this, you know? (laughs) And, uh, cause then I, then I'll kind of let my mind take over and I'll say, God, I can't believe I did that 17 months. I can't believe I said that, but I always take my time. I'll put on either a song or music that'll take me out of that or, you know, breathing and kind of just breathing and and I do my, I do the, I will. I'll do the, you know, the box breathing and the, uh, and then just kind of bring myself back and think, but look where you're at today, you know, and, uh, and then just thankful I'm not missing out on the stuff that's going on in my life now.
2: Yeah. And, and you're also helping others, you know, you're helping a lot. That's part of
1: my favorite part. Yeah. You're you're helping a grandson and then doing that are my two favorite things. (laughs) Yeah.
2: You're, you're helping so many others, um, by sharing your story. And I know, you know, there's a lot of people going to be listening in on, on to this interview. And uh, we have a lot of first responders listening for, and, and families and someone who even just loves a first responder, right? Um, but you have them all listening and I know they're going to relate with your story. You're so open um, in sharing, um, you know, your journey and, and taking us through all of that, um, even the dark moments and, you know, that guilt that you felt, um, you know, f- from that mom specifically, um not being able to grieve them privately and the guilt that you felt from that um and then also you know with your with your struggles with your marriage your own personal stuff with your family and then able to to sort of accept and open up to say uh, i don't want to do this anymore i i'm i don't care what people think anymore i'm going to get help and i need to get help and and, and and you obviously realized that you needed the support of of your partner, your wife, right? Yeah. And uh, it's the brave,
1: I tell you, it's the bravest thing you'll ever do. You know, yeah. um, I always show people, you know, my, my sons grew up, uh, you know, their dad's a firefighter or their cop, that's cool and everything. You know, yeah. and they, it's cool. And they tell people, but I'll tell you, my sons are probably, well, I know they've told me they are, they're more proud of the steps I took to save my life and my family and my career. Yeah than they were of my actual career. Yeah. So I mean that's that's who's there at the end of the day is family, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I left the fire department on March first, two thousand seventeen, on March second, they promoted somebody and put them in my seat <laughs> and the fire yeah. department had missed a beat. You yeah, know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they haven't called me one time to say, hey, would you please come back? Or, yeah, or, yeah. Uh, we're not, we can't make it without you. None of that. So, uh, your family. Day, man, that's who's there is family. That's yeah, who's there.
2: absolutely. They're important to you. Can I just and, ask you... thank you all,
1: too, for this yeah. platform that y'all give Oh, thank,
2: thank you. Uh, Can I just ask you one more thing before I go? Yes. I'm like, if you were to give a first responder listening tonight and you were to give them words of encouragement... Um, to seek help, what would, what would you say to them?
1: I would tell, especially the young ones, uh, every, any emotion you have on any call, I don't care if it's a national media event or a natural disaster or a basic putting a bandaid on a little kid, every emotion that you feel spiritually, physically, mentally is perfectly normal. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's it's 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 that simple. You don't think it is because of the world you're in. You don't think you can feel that. You're not supposed to because you're supposed to be it's perfectly every every emotion you feel is because you're human and you have a heart. You cannot do this job. Like he said, it's a calling. I truly believe that. I think the ones that it's maybe not a calling they got on because it was great benefits and or you know, steady job or they needed a job, either wash out. You know, or they're just bitter old crusty firefighters or cops or whatever you want to call it. Mm. But um the fact that you do this job, you have a heart. You gotta have a heart to do this job. And that heart will get stepped on numerous, numerous times during this job. But every emotion you feel is 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 perfectly normal. It's a natural human reaction. Yeah. So, but if you can't shake that feeling of that human reaction then go talk to somebody about it and you know that's uh that's it's all about it's not as much this anymore as it is this yeah absolutely
2: (laughs) so if anyone's listening in and you just heard chris say what he just said it's okay to have those feelings and have those emotions it's perfectly normal and go talk to someone Uh, and 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 it's as simple as that and and, and they, if they want to
1: reach out they can contact yeah. me through the website or my i don't know if y'all can post it or have y'all put my personal email up yeah. or whatever. Yes, People we will do that. Out. We will so, absolutely and do that. I'm on all the social media deals. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, so
2: Chris Field, you just have to google him. <laughs> and he's right yeah, there. there you, go. you just have to google him, <laughs> he's right there too. Chris, thank you so much. I mean, it's been a pleasure. I'll be thinking about this all night. Um and I can't wait for it to to be released and to um you know to get it out there to live to our listeners to be able to hear it um uh, it's just a, such a pleasure meeting you and i i hope to meet you in person sometime in the future yes definitely definitely yeah, if uh, you're ever definitely. up in massachusetts
1: and, uh, again thank you all so much and uh for having this platform for people to you know be able to tell their stories so appreciate it
2: thank you so much chris
0: Chris took us on a journey through his 31-year career as a firefighter in Oklahoma City. He says that after his first call, he was hooked. Chris shared with us that his first day on the job, he had to perform life-saving measures on a human being, and that he wasn't prepared for how different that experience would be when compared to practicing on mannequins at the academy. Over the course of his career, Chris witnessed many critical incidents including the loss of three of his fellow firefighters, one who had been his mentor. By that time in his career, Chris had been on many bad calls, so he did what he had always done. He stuffed it down, didn't talk about it, because he knew that he had to be ready for that next call. Chris shared with us his experience responding to the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. He described that scene in detail, and what it was like as a firefighter during the rescue and recovery. He talked about the guilt that he felt after a photo of him went out to every news channel, newspaper and magazine outlet. The photo was of him holding a critical infant in his arms and it had gone worldwide. It wasn't until nearly 10 years after that bombing that Chris reached his breaking point and eventually became open to receiving help. Today, Chris is a national speaker, helping other first responders seek help for themselves, smash the stigma. He encourages first responders to not be like him, to not stuff everything down. He asks, "How are you going to get through a long career carrying the weight of the job on your shoulders?" It says that the answer is simple. You cannot. If you are a first responder who can relate to Chris's story of recovery, please reach out. If you're struggling now and you don't know where to start, call one of the Hope Lines at 781-817-3357 or 617-657-9108. Till next time. Till next time.